Hey, this is Lexi. This is Ari. And you're listening to Hotel Earth. Hi, we'd like to extend our stay and upgrade. in California, everybody. We are in the beautiful city of Santa Cruz. We're finally reunited. Finally reunited. We did some virtual pods for a a couple of weeks, but we're very happy to be back in the same city. And we are joined by a super special guest today. A very special guest today. Um, A whole coastal resilience and policy PhD candidate and one of my best friends, Miss Clarissa Pickett everyone. Hello, hello. (laughs) Thanks for having me. We're so, so, so excited. Um, Clarissa and I go back, go way back. Um, We met in high school when I first moved to California for the first time, obviously. (laughs) I've only moved once. Um, When I moved to California when I was about 15 or 16, and she was one of the first friends I made, and it really stuck. Um, She taught, she's actually the inspiration for a lot of my um, interest in environmental science and sustainability because I knew nothing before I met her <laughs> and I ended up getting my college degree in environmental science and policy so I owe a lot of that that inspiration to this this wonderful human and we're really excited to have her on the podcast today and um, talk about some of her specialties as she, you know as she's um, she's studying her PhD here in Santa Cruz and we're really really excited to have her talk about her expert what like what she's um you know what she's an expert in today. Before we get into that, though, do you have any embarrassing stories about Ari you want to share? Ooh, <laughs> that's exciting. Well, I can say that Ariana and I bonded over our love of the ocean, Ooh. and my dad and I took her surfing for the first time. Fuck me, this is not. And um, she did her best. She was a good sport <laughs> out there. But she struggled a little bit. She's a tall girl. She's got beautiful long legs. But let's just say when she got up on that surfboard, more often than not, we were talking about a big wipeout. I'm a gawky thing on a surfboard, let's be honest. Yeah, so the only way I stood up was her father literally had to, like, prop me up and, like, push the surfboard out. And I kind of stood up for, like, four seconds. I'd like to it see you try it, well, honestly. hey, I mean, I don't know if that'll happen in this lifetime, but we'll give it a shot. Yeah, Clarissa and I bonded super quick, not necessarily over surfing, but definitely <laughs> over the ocean. And we were both Pisces queens, which is... Which was definitely playing a factor. I don't care if you don't believe in astrology. But. Clarissa had... She made fun of us the first night because we so much as mentioned mm. astrological signs. How dare we? I'm a scientist. I say, so are we. You know, actually, just to, to give you a little bit more clout and toot your horn, tell us all a little bit about where you did your undergrad, where you're yeah, currently let's doing your PhD. Give us those sure. creds. Sure. So I studied environmental science at UC Berkeley as an undergrad. But I did notice that a lot of my classes were very problem-oriented. So it started to get overwhelming learning about all the ways in which the planet is 
quite frankly, fucked. <laughs> and so I started to think more about solutions. So after college, I really tried to delve into work experiences and research experiences that allowed me to develop solutions and um, participate more on the solution end of things. So that's been really exciting. And now I've started my PhD at UC Santa Cruz, Ooh, where she's clearly a dumbass. Everyone, <laughs> I I absolutely love it here. I'm right on the water, and of course, I get to study my favorite thing, the ocean. So I'm studying coastal science and policy. We are very very proud of her, especially me. I've knowing her for I think it's going on eight years now. It's so awesome to see her grow and and get into this field and really, really become a pillar in there. So we're very, very proud of her. Thank we you. are. Clarissa's studies mostly focus on the San Francisco Bay Area, but a lot of these ideas are able to be adapted for similar areas worldwide. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to, before we really get into our topic today, briefly explain a bit about what we're going to discuss. So we're going to be talking about sea level rise, its relation to climate change, how humans influence climate change, and the ways we can respond to these effects through adaptation, mitigation, and... Retreat. There we go. I I venture to say a lot of our listeners will be impacted by our topic today. In fact, 30 states in the U.S. are along a coast of some kind, whether that be ocean, gulf, or the Great Lakes... And for those across the pond and beyond, approximately 200 countries have a coastline, with Canada's being the largest. And even if you're not on a coast, sea level rise could make you on a coast, let's be honest. So, Clarissa, we in Florida are no strangers to extreme weather events like hurricanes and flooding, but can you explain a little bit about how those relate to sea level rise and climate change? Like what's the influence climate change has on these extreme weather events? Yeah, extreme weather events um, are going to become more and more frequent because of climate change induced sea level rise, which I will explain in a bit. But um, we kind of treat these as if they are come and go issues, sporadic events, but sea level rise is here to stay and its effects are only magnifying, so they aren't going anywhere. And it's going to be really important that we prepare because the effects of sea level rise are going to extend hundreds of feet inland and have really massive effects socially, culturally, but also economically. So um, these are things that are going to be really difficult to address in some locations in which there's less socioeconomic resilience. So areas that have less money, essentially, it's going to be really difficult to bounce back. Wealthier regions will have a higher likelihood of being able to bounce back. So there is a potential environmental justice issue when you start to think about flooding. Yep, that's for sure. And we've talked about intersectional environmental issues on our show before. Mm -hmm. We will probably end up doing like a full show about that eventually. But I mean, there's so many examples already. Yeah. This is happening. In the US, I think most people, the first one that's going to come to mind is New Orleans mm. and abroad. And abroad, I mean, we've got, everyone knows about Venice, that, <laughs> that, that walking wonder, that floating wonder, rather. The sinking city. <sighs> so, along the lines of coastal changes, we want to acknowledge the natural changes that happen to coastlines. For instance, according to a more recent study by Harvard, it's possible that at one point all of the earth was underwater. Wild to imagine, but yes, coastlines change, people. 
Most people have at least heard of Pangaea. Um, Pangaea was a continent that existed 300 to 200 million years ago, if you can fathom that. <laughs> it combined what is modern-day North America, Africa, South America, and Europe. It does not exist today because of tectonic plate movements, movements which are still very much active. Fun fact, the East Pacific rise is an example of sea floor spreading in the southeastern Pacific Ocean, and it spreads apart three to six inches every year. <laughs> Aside from tectonic plates doing the cha-cha slide, some areas that were once underwater are now at least 100 feet above what our current sea level is. The planet is constantly changing, and according to our historic records, our seas have been much larger than what they are even now. And we have built as if our coastlines don't shift, but we can see that that just isn't the case. Most definitely. You guys are exactly right. The seas level is changing, and it's nothing new. Coastlines have drastically shifted over Earth's lifetime. For example, sea level has been rising globally since the end of the last ice age, mm -hmm. about 18,000 years ago. But it was rising very gradually until the 1800s when it began rising at a very, very fast rate mm -hmm. and this time period just so happens to mark the industrial revolution hmm. Shock. potentially <laughs> potentially lines up with when we started to contribute to climate change through our emissions and with the expanded use of fossil fuels the greenhouse gas content of the atmosphere began to increase and earth has warmed in response so Sea level rise is a byproduct. The rise continues to accelerate and measurements of absolute sea level from space indicate an average rise of about 3.4 millimeters per year. Wow. And this may seem like a very small amount, but for perspective, it's more than twice the average rate over the 20th century wow. and greater, <laughs> a long time. greater than any time over the past thousand years. Jesus, let that sink in. Holy fuck. Sink, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. so these little, little changes have drastic effects in how our coastlines look. Yeah. And local sea level rise can vary due to variables like vertical land motion and mm -hmm. topography. So, yeah. is there cliffs along the coastline? Is it flat along the coastline? Right, right. So whenever people ask me how much sea level will rise where they live, I have to say it depends. But there are a lot of cool flood models online to check local projections. So how how do we measure sea level? Like what's what's the what's the protocol been at least in recent scientific history? <laughs> yeah, so we have actually been getting really accurate sea level estimates through tide gauge data since mm. the 1800s. Wow. Yeah. We, That's crazy. We have no a very long record of um, sea level change over time, but we have an even more accurate way to assess sea level now, and that's through satellite data. Right. Okay. Right. It's a good thing we put those things up there, huh? It's a good thing they <laughs> shove those things into orbit. Huh? So what can graphs like the Keeling curve tell us? Yeah, the Keeling Curve is really, really important. In fact, it was named one of the most important scientific works of the 20th century. And many scientists credit the curve with first bringing the world's attention to the um, conditions of climate change, right? The current increase of carbon in the atmosphere. So the graph is the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere and it's based on continuous measurements that were taken at the Mauna Loa Observatory on Hawaii from 
1958 to the present day. Um, and it's named after the scientist Keeling, who started the monitoring program and supervised it until his death in 2005. And the graph essentially shows us that we have been contributing to increasing the amount of carbon in our atmosphere through greenhouse gas emissions, and in turn have been warming our planet. So essentially, as we emit more and more fossil fuels, this causes greenhouse gases to increase in the atmosphere. And this basically acts as a greenhouse trapping in warmth and raising temperatures on the planet, especially at the poles. Yeah. And of course, as it gets warmer, what happens to ice? It melts. Does it? I think so. I think that's how it works. I think I've watched my the cubes in my iced coffee melt as I sit outside on a hot day. I've seen those images of the glaciers melting, bruh. Shit's real. That too. Exactly. Yeah. You can try this at home, guys. As it gets warmer, ice melts. And as it melts, sea levels rise. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty basic science there. Pretty basic physics. But there is actually one other way sea level is rising that people don't usually think about. Do tell. Do you guys know what it is? Is it when Lexi enters the water and the glass is so Oh, is that not it? I thought it was the sheer mass of her ass that displaced the water. Is that not correct? For those of you who can't see her, she does have a very, very nice ass. <laughs> I'm also beet red. I'm nervous sweating now. Never. I, have, I have achieved my life's goal. Lexi's never going in the ocean again. She <laughs> might cause a tsunami. <laughs> Yes. If it's not Lexi's ass, could you please tell us what what this other what this other way is? My father's gonna be mortified. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't worry, Lexi. It's not your beautiful butt. <laughs> sea level rise is a byproduct of thermal expansion. So mm -hmm. as the ocean warms or as any water warms, it actually expands. So it's the combination of this expanding warming ocean and these giant melting ice masses that are contributing to raising the level of sea level. Um, but the Keeling curve, does does the Keeling curve have the projections within it or is that the information you use to make the projections? Can you explain how those two work together? Sure, so the Keeling curve was actually measured by this scientist who went out in a remote part of Hawaii to basically test the greenhouse gas concentrations, and he then plotted and graphed those. And um, you can look it up online, Google image Keeling curve, and you can see how temperature has responded to um, carbon concentration. So PPM, parts per million, um, in our atmosphere at the Mauna Loa Observatory. And then basically you can overlay this graph, which is only what's happened up until this point. Okay. So he has been taking concentration measurements up until this point, And on the graph, you can see it tick up, mm -hmm. right? So it hasn't remained static. We have contributed to the carbon concentration. And then if you overlay that with um, a temperature graph, for example, as we have raised our carbon concentrations, part per million PPM, basically temperatures have gone up. So this 
uh, Keeling curve is one of the best piece of, pieces of evidence we have that climate change is driven by human action in the form of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm, incredible, incredible stuff there that is. I can see why people get overwhelmed and I can also see why people say it's fake because this is not necessarily something we're taught in school and it can kind of seem like a lot all at once but when you break it down the way that you have it's pretty clear to see how climate change relates to sea level rise right yeah um i think that it's really difficult when people hear about projections and they're not really sure how those projections were created and oftentimes there's kind of a wide range of projections, right? You see graphs or you see on the news or you hear scientists talk about how much sea level will rise by 2050 or 2100. Um, and it can be really confusing because there are different estimates. But the reason there are a range of estimates is that how much sea level will rise really depends on our actions now until then, right? Mm -hmm. How many, how many more uh trucks are we going to drive? How many more coal plants are we going to have in effect? How much more greenhouse gas emissions are we going to release into the atmosphere causing more warmings? So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change essentially has come up with these representative concentration pathways based on how much we emit. So there's like a low emission scenario. For example, if we lower our emissions drastically, What's the outcome going to be temperature-wise, sea level rise? What are the climate effects going to look like? Versus if we continue to expand our fossil fuel emissions, that's going to result in a completely different outcome, right? right. So it can be hard to give an exact estimate of how much sea level will rise in the next 50 years because, again, that really depends on our actions. Um, another great resource to look into what projections might be, or if you want to learn more about sea level rise in general, is looking up NOAA. Do you guys know what NOAA is? National Oceanic and Atmosphere something? Atmospheric Association. Atmospheric Association. Boom, got three of the four. Yes. Missed probably the easiest one, but I contributed nothing to that. So I'm just going to. Well, I'm not kudos. the PhD candidate now, am I? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's all right. No, but, I'm impressed. But yeah, guys, definitely check out check out this um this resource. It's a it's a great way to kind of see the different types of projections that could be out there, and maybe you can further your understanding of what this this data is trying to trying to um, prepare us for. And you have one in particular in mind. Yes. So they actually just came out with a 2022 sea level rise technical report. And this provides the most up-to-date sea level rise projections available for all the U.S. states and territories. Um, and they also have a really, really awesome tool called the NOAA Sea Level Rise Viewer, which allows you to put in your address where you live and then see what the effect of one foot of rise will have on your area, two feet of rise, three feet of rise. It can be really eye-opening to just have the visual and be able to see Wow. So if the sea level rises just one foot, what does that make mm -hmm. your coastal town look like? Um, it can be pretty shocking. So not to scare you guys. And they do provide a really awesome fact sheet describing what kind of data went into it. How did they create these tools? Where did they get their information from? They're really transparent and reputable. And 
Um, they're absolutely try their best to be as unbiased as possible. Mm -hmm. As scientists, I think it's really important to look to reputable sources and NOAA really is one of those. And yeah, these resources are really interesting and really cool if you want to learn more. Yeah, check it out, you guys. Um, so Clarissa, how how can sea level rise impact various areas depending on geographic location? Like, can you talk a little bit about your studies, at least, you know, I know you're focused on Santa Cruz specifically or the Bay Area, but and it can, that can be applicable to other areas. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so throughout my work after graduating college, I've looked at different regions in California and worked on these adaptation plans, right? So basically preparing the coast to be more resilient. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there are really, really interesting ways that we are thinking about how sea level rise and flooding and coastal storms are going to affect different regions. And a lot of that has to do with topography again, right? Mm -hmm. What does the coastline look like? What elevation is it at? Is it sandy? Is it yeah. cliffs? Mm. You know, um, but you're also looking at different weather patterns and weather zones, right? In California, we don't have hurricanes. In Florida, exactly. you do. Exactly. Um, so yeah, basically the effects that flooding will have and how they interact with sea level rise, but also the solutions are really going to depend on geographic region. Mm. And how we react to those yeah. things. I've noticed in our short time here, in Santa Cruz that a lot of what y'all have is cliffside. In Florida, when um, when I was working, we I focused a lot on writing permits and we would get a lot of applications for riprap, which is basically placing boulders in along your shoreline to attenuate waves, which basically just means to slow them down, break them up before they hit your shoreline, and yeah. that helps mitigate your erosion. Um, the other thing that we would permit for are two things, seawalls, which are literally exactly what they sound like, a wall that follows your shoreline, and it usually meets a sea or a river or another body of water. And then the last is a living shoreline, which is when you plant um, plants mm -hmm. along your shoreline to take care of that wave attenuation problem and stop the erosion of your shoreline. But unfortunately, some of at least for riprap and seawalls, they don't always actually take care of the problem and they can actually exacerbate it downstream. Yep. For instance, when you put a seawall in like a river system, oh. it'll actually speed up the water as it flows past the seawall, which will erode shorelines further down. Yeah. So it can be a really compounding problem if you're not careful with how you deal with these issues. Yeah, I think coastal engineering for, for sea level rise resilience is a very, very important topic for people to be aware of because some of these so like you know so-called solutions actually cause other problems down the line. Um, we'll talk about hard versus soft engineering structures later, but for example, an example of a hard structure is the seawalls Lexi just described. And another another you know important thing to remember is that the impact of of a storm surge, if you are talking about a coastline and a seawall, that all that energy coming to a seawall, it just gets reflected. The exact amount of energy that gets put toward it gets reflected right back out and could cause damage somewhere else. So those aren't always the best options. You know, it's, no. it, it does take a lot of creative thinking and innovation and studies like Clarissa is doing to really come together and find 
formidable solutions for these kinds of these kinds of things. Yeah, a lot of these solutions are kind of band-aids though. Mm-hmm. Obviously a wall isn't gonna work forever as the sea level gets higher and higher. Um, something else to think about is maybe you've thought about how sea level rise or flooding or storms, coastal hazards in general will affect beaches or houses, but something I study is how it might affect contaminated waste sites. So there you go. as you have chemicals being exposed to flooding and inundation, what if that toxin migrates? Well, it, it, it gets... very easily could with sea level rise. I mean, yeah. it's how are you, how, how do you compartmentalize it? Like it can't be, you know? Yes. The effects are going to be so far reaching. So it is a little bit of an existential crisis. Aside from just the effects of the water doing what water does and spreading, um, how does climate change make coastal storms worse? How does that relationship work together? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I've seen a lot of skepticism about this point when things like hurricanes happen and scientists try to relate it to climate change. Often people are like, oh, I'm so done. I don't want to hear about it. Yep. Like, this is not related to... We've had hurricanes before. We know hurricanes, you know, which is true. Um, but climate change does actually affect ocean storms. And I just want to give a really succinct explanation for anybody who might be confused about how. Essentially, evaporation intensifies as temperatures rise. We know that, right? When we heat up any form of water. And so does the transfer of heat from the oceans to the air. So as the storms travel across warm oceans, they pull in more water vapor and more heat. And what does that mean? Stronger wind, heavier rainfall, and more flooding when the storms hit land. More intense storm. It results in a more intense storm. Which is why we get hit with cat threes and cat fours. And cat fives. Yeah, when we've previously been faced with ones, twos, and maybe just a tropical storm. Mm -hmm. With these storms becoming more intense as climate change um, becomes more intense, (laughs) what does preparing for the incoming storm surge and flooding look like for us? So I think what you're leading me into is coastal adaptation. That's right. (laughs) Um, It's really, really a cool burgeoning study. Um, It's allowing us to think about solutions. It can be a very daunting problem, but I just want to reiterate for the people out there that there are solutions that we can learn about and even implement. And there are solutions that are being implemented right now today. Um, But the goal of coastal adaptation is to minimize hazards from flooding, and it typically involves two strategies, either shoreline protection or retreat or a combination of both. So protection can take the form of armoring, putting structures in place that hold water back, Mm -hmm. or it can take the form of elevating land, Mm -hmm. like building up the coastline with sediments, but managed retreat is essentially the coordinated movement of people and infrastructure away from risks, but a lack of preparation often results in a more chaotic retreat. What's the best approach to find solutions to these coastal crises that we face? So I think it's really, again, dependent on geography, right? Um, One region really might have to retreat. 
They might be so on the brink of flooding. We've already seen that in some parts of California where they're already experiencing so much day-to-day flooding and they didn't prepare adequately ahead of time. And so they're having to pull back structures, whether it's individual houses or railroads starting small, but it's going to get to the point where larger areas might have to pull back and or put up some sort of barrier, right? And that can take the form of a green barrier. So that's a more earthen barrier. It could be a natural barrier, for example, like an oyster reef Mm -hmm. or even kelp beds stop the strength of waves or what is known as wave attenuation, right? That kind of holds back some of that flow. Um, But it also can take the form of gray infrastructure, which is more like a seawall or a a concrete structure, a jetty. Mm -hmm. It's not natural and can often have a lot of unforeseen consequences. A prime example of a place that is implementing more than one of these strategies, because ultimately it's not just adapting, retreating, or any other form. It's usually a combination of all the things. In Florida, Miami is a great example of adapting and retreating. So Miami-Dade County has actually put out their own um, GIS map where they're talking about how they're going to approach sea level rise. Because in some of the projections that we were talking about earlier, we're going to see around two feet of sea level rise by 2050 in Miami. Wow. Two feet. So in, in their approach, they're going to be moving infrastructure like homes, roads, and seawalls up. So taking fill and hopefully rising these things. But they're also going to move their infrastructure inward, so retreat, and raise what little they can so that they're not underwater. So Miami is an example of how policy and science do collaborate and are collaborating because this is a very real thing that is happening right now Mm -hmm. um, to create regulations like the planning that they have. But you were talking about some projects that you're working on or or maybe you're aware of that are kind of similar to this approach. Yeah. So I'm actually working on a really cool solution-oriented project right now. Um, I'm helping build the University of California Intercampus Coastal Resilience Initiative. Look at that. Very fancy long name. California is a leader in identifying coastal resilience as one of the state's most pressing priorities and promoting the need for effective solutions to help communities address these accelerating social, economic, and environmental challenges driven by sea level rise. And essentially, our project is going to try to better connect future research with regional adaptation needs. And we're going to be building a more integrated University of California system-wide network for coastal science. The goal is to inform decision-making in California and beyond. So we're looking at things like shoreline changes, monitoring those changes, challenges related to coastal adaptation pathways, like you were saying, what route do we take where? Um, and where UC research labs should focus their projects to more effectively inform priorities and adaptation. So it's really cool because we're thinking about what are the next steps rather than getting overwhelmed by this huge (laughs) impending wave. Well, I mean, that's that's how you should approach these kinds of things. Like it's super overwhelming, like climate anxiety can be super overwhelming when you're thinking about it from such a broad, such a big, like, 
magnified glass. I don't know. Sometimes it helps to just take it step by step. The the goal in in, in adapting is doing what we should have been doing right off the rip. We should have been preparing for change. So this is actually a great opportunity for us to make something that is really usable for everyone. Cause that's kind of the point that um, we've maybe overlooked mm-hmm. that we have not prepared all of our people to maybe be impacted this. So yeah. um, by using these new ways to, live with sea level rise because no matter what we do we will see some sea level rise and these adaptations are actually pretty impressive they can be beautiful they can be aesthetically pleasing right we can design we have an opportunity here right we can choose to see this as a really daunting task or we can choose to see it as a chance to make our shorelines more beautiful more accessible right i've seen really interesting plans to develop shorelines into these parks that are able to handle more flooding that can be accessed by everybody. Um, I've seen really cool structures that beautify shorelines and even enhance beach operation as opposed to a big concrete wall that Mm. essentially limits the beach access over time, right? So um, this doesn't need to be something that is ugly or sad or imposing. It can be a chance to kind of reinvigorate shorelines and exactly how you said work with them and have them be these dynamic systems that they were meant to be. And they were always dynamic, right? Like, yeah, exactly. And that's such a Clarissa thing to say, to turn this into a positive. Like, I I love that she just made everyone get super excited to adapt to the game. I feel like every time we have these, like, every time Ari and I pick a topic, we start off with this, like, oh, shit, we have to talk about this thing that can be kind of sad, but... It's moments like this where we actually sit down, get to the nuts and bolts. I figured out which two phrases I combined, everyone. We get to the nuts and bolts of the issue and we propose solutions. Like you were saying when you chose this program, you wanted to not have the dread. You wanted to create solutions and our adaptations moving forward are part of that. But we can do other things to hopefully not have to adapt as drastically The main one is instead of putting on a freaking Band-Aid, we address the root of the issue. Let's do it. And that's through mitigation, right? Ultimately, the warmer temperatures from emissions lead to sea level rise. So the best thing we can do is lower our emissions. Okay, listeners. That's uh, that's your cue. cue. (laughs) We just want to share just some solutions. Now, this may seem broad, but here are like the top six ways we can reduce emissions according to a masterclass article I found, but it checks out. So number one, who wants to say it? Reduce your air flights. I know we love to travel, but Uh, the biggest thing you can do as an individual is to limit your flying miles. So what you can do to do that is like, if you love Italy, for example, you just move and live there instead of flying back and forth, which is what I did. And you know what? Transportation is one of, it is now the number one source of greenhouse gases. Um, So You know, aside from us taking our commercial flights, reducing our private jet flights is also a great way to reduce some air travel. So, you know, those flights that you absolutely necessarily need to take, 
go for it in the ones you don't. Maybe uh, eliminate just one round trip transatlantic and you'll save about 1.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide. Give or take. Boom. Give or take. Yeah. Okay, number two. Go on. Make your driving more efficient. I am literally the transportation paradigm shift hoe of mm. this podcast. <laughs> She's not lying. I will die on that soapbox. I will die on that soapbox. Public transportation is... The solution. The Well, yeah, it is the cat's meow. It's not just like get an electric car because like at the end of the day, it doesn't really solve much. And we will talk about that on another yeah. episode. It's the paradigm shift of public transportation in general. But yes, that's a sneak peek. Number three, plant trees or support businesses that do so for carbon offset, perhaps. Number four, switch to clean energy. We can transition to less carbon intensive energy sources, right? That might include solar or wind or hydropower. Um, one of the more controversial ones is mm. nuclear power. Ooh, we will Which, be doing an episode on nuclear power. That, that's going to be another one of our guest speakers, actually. Mm, interesting. Number five. Eat less red meat. Sorry, guys. It's just the facts. Over 220 grams of carbon dioxide are produced for every gram of beef produced, resulting in almost 4% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. We're not suggesting you need to cut it out entirely, but even if you can reduce it in any way, eating some more vegetarian diet base, I mean, like I said, it doesn't have to be every, every meal, but Consuming less beef can lower the amount of carbon present in our atmosphere. Number six. Make your home more energy efficient. I want Clarissa to talk about this one because I know in California, they're a bit more of the pioneers in this than maybe our Floridian counterparts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you live in a state that allows you to choose your energy supplier, you could look for a supplier that uses renewable energy sources you could install solar panels it's actually kind of expensive upfront cost but you end up saving a lot yes. of money in the long run yeah. my family actually gets money back they get rebates they get a lot of benefits in our state at least for getting solar panels so somehow they're actually making money instead of losing well, that's money. Cool. so that's yeah it's very very cool um and yeah so you want to make sure your energy sources aren't coming from coal right uh ideally less fossil fuel intensive energy sources that would be great another thing to keep in mind is ensuring your home is adequately insulated and that doors and windows are sealed with weather stripping to prevent cooled and heated air from escaping and, you know, lastly, reduce energy use in your everyday life. Buy appliances that meet the U.S. energy efficiency standards. Use your thermostat to regulate temperatures and try to use your air conditioning infrequently. Turn off all lights and appliances when you're not using them and replace old lights with LED light. But hopefully you guys can, like, take some take some of these tips away home with you. Relate it back to Clarissa's awesome talk about sea level rise and coastal resilience. And check out those NOAA tools. Check out the NOAA tools. At the end of the day, we all understand that that can seem like a really big, daunting topic. But the sooner we get ahead of these issues, the sooner we can protect people. Yeah. Clarissa, thank you so much for taking your time out of our fun little girls trip yeah. to, to sit down and do this with us. Um, like I said, I've been personally very inspired by you all these years. You're doing great things. 
we are both so, so proud of you. Clarissa, if you'd be happy to share maybe some of your social media so people can follow you, anything that you want to plug, this is your opportunity. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, thank you guys for having me on. It was a pleasure. I'm very, very happy you guys are doing this. Obviously, I nerd out and get excited about this kind of stuff. So it makes me so, so happy to see that other people are on that same wavelength. Oh, yeah. And to all of you guys listening, thank you so, so much because... The fact that you care just makes us feel so happy, so much more relieved. There's a sense of togetherness. So yeah, I appreciate you too. And um, as far as my research goes, I will probably be publishing under the name Chrissy Pickett, C-R-I-S-S-Y-P-I-C-K-E-T-T. So if you want to go on to Google Scholar <laughs> in a couple of years, hopefully a few of my papers will be out and it will be all related to coastal resilience. So if this is a topic of interest to you, check it out. And I think we can go ahead and wrap this up and say ciao for now. Maybe hasta la pizza. Bye, bitches. Bye, bitches. Bye.